Well, I wonder what your favourite mountaintop experience has been. What's that been, that moment where you've, in, you've stood on the top of a high place, taking in the view? Uh, I reckon I've had so many mountaintop experiences, I can't really easily single one out. Um, I remember climbing to the top of Australia's highest peak, but it was a bit of an anticlimax, really, just a bit of a bump on the top of a crest. But there's a couple of others that are pretty good. Uh, Mount Wellington overlooking Hobart, that's quite a mountain, isn't it? Uh, or I climbed to the... Uh, I didn't climb to the top of Mount Wellington, I drove up the top, got out of my car. But, but the Sunday Cairn, that is a knob right on the top of a, the tallest air, hill mountain around the Sundays. We climbed up there on a hot, hot day in December. That was hot and hard, but had ex- extraordinary views as we stood on the top. But sometimes it was uh, actually the overseas trips that showed some incredible mountains, like Mount Cook in New Zealand. That's what a mountain's supposed to look like. Or El Capitan or Half Dome at Yosemite in California. Or basically any bump in the Canadian Rockies. They're all mountains. They're the real thing, aren't they, Ray? (laughs) When you stand at the top of a truly great mountain, it is extraordinary. It is overwhelming. But when you even stand at a foot of a mountain that's like that, you still have your breath taken away as well. It turns out that God used mountains to give people special spiritual experiences. God used mountains for spiritual experiences, like Mount Sinai, of course, when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, which is also the same mountain that Elijah went to so that he could also meet with God, which didn't quite go exactly as he planned. Jesus often did things at mountains as well. He had his sermon on the mount. And right at the end of Matthew's Gospel, we'll get to the bit where he will be on a mountain and he'll say, go make disciples of all nations, etc., etc., which we'll get to that a bit later on. But possibly, if it's not the most famous, it's up there, is the moment that we're going to see today, a very famous mountaintop experience where not only does it involve a mountain, but it also involves Moses and Elijah to throw them in as well. Most people reckon that what we are looking at tonight uh, took place um, at Mount Hermon, which is around about half a day's walk north of all the stuff that we looked at last week about the rocks and rocky and things like that. Basically, things have got really real since the turning point we looked at last week. Remember the turning point? It's when they finally realise that Jesus is the Messiah. And from that point onwards, it's kind of like the toothpaste is out of the tube. You can't go back in. Everything changes. And from this point onwards, we start to see some extraordinary things happen. They've understood Jesus' true identity. And now, well, let's see what happens next. Because it starts with verse 1, where we see that six days later, Jesus took Peter... And the two brothers, James and John, and led them up a high mountain to be alone. It's a week after that, I will build my church chat. Jesus then, in the light of that, well, they're probably still shell-shocked from all of that. He took three key disciples with him for a bushwalk up the mountain. And they did it to be alone so that they could spend time with Jesus. Jesus invited them to spend time with him. I don't know, maybe things were just a little bit raw after that event, only six days earlier. It's pretty intense. (laughs) Jesus did call Peter Satan. I mean, that was probably a fairly intense thing. But, uh, you know, uh, as I think about it, without wanting to psychoanalyse the disciples too much, it seems that Peter's the kind of guy who's pretty extroverted. He he likes to speak by think by... He likes to think by speaking. And sometimes he doesn't even seem to think a lot before he speaks. I love Peter. He's, He's my man. 
But maybe all of this stuff he's still trying to process and so they go away for a bushwalk together. But maybe it was more than just a bushwalk. Maybe it was more than just a chat. Maybe something very special was about to happen. And, well, it does. Verse 2, as the men watched Jesus' appearance... Uh, Sorry, as the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Uh, That's weird. (laughs) That is really weird. Jesus is suddenly there on the mountaintop shining like the sun, like a a really, really bright light, Like, like headlights when you're out walking along the road at night and you get blinded by a high beam. That's the kind of look. Jesus shone like the sun. But does it have any significance? Or is it just sort of, you know, what happens when you have a transfiguration as you do? I think there's, that we're supposed to, as we're reading through Matthew's Gospel, we've got to have Isaiah in front of us. I'll, I'll have an Isaiah quote for you soon. You know, you, I know you've been waiting for it. And Daniel as well. Daniel, especially the, 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 the funky bits a bit later on and the later bits, it pops up all the time. Like Daniel 12, the last chapter, it says, "...those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky." And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. It's a picture of the resurrection life. It's the day of resurrection that's coming. And maybe this is a foretaste right here. Join the dots between those. But anyway, suddenly we read, verse 3, that Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. (laughs) That's also weird, okay? Because uh, those are dead guys. They've been dead for quite a while. And here they are with Jesus. And if I was one of those three disciples, seeing Jesus turn into a very bright LED light would have been weird. To have him chatting with Moses and Elijah would have just been extra weird. And I think we can just conclude that the experience was ultimately fairly overwhelming for them. The experience was overwhelming. And so we see, as a result, a fairly interesting response from them. We see that uh, in chapter 17, verse 4, I think I'm having a bit of problems with my clicker. If you could just advance it for me. Thanks, Nick. Maybe we're all having problems. All right, it's coming along. We see in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 17, Peter exclaimed, Lord, it's wonderful for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three shelters as memorials. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Ever been one of those situations where it's been super awkward and someone needed to break the silence and it's you and you say something that later you realise is probably <laughs> a little bit interesting? I think that's probably how we define this. You know, there's Jesus shining like a bright torch and Moses and Elijah popping in to say good day, and Peter needs to say something. He says... Hey, Jesus, how about I put up three tents? And you could imagine all three of them. I don't know you, but really? (laughs) But that's what happens. It's overwhelming at that point. It's weird. But there's no time to think about what it means to put tents up because verse 5, we see here that even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. This is probably the most significant thing. They're up there on the mountain, the cloud comes in, and there you go. God speaks to them all. 
It's not the first time God's spoken in Matthew's Gospel in a spectacular way. He did that at an earlier time. Can anyone remember what the event was where something was said just like that? The baptism. baptism? Bingo, that's exactly right. He said in chapters 3, verse 17, a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. But he says something slightly more in the verse I just took off the screen. Can you remember what he just said that was a bit more than that? Listen to him. Listen to him. God told them, you know, I love my son, but the second time it's, I love my son, he's special. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the servant of the Lord. But on this mountaintop, God the Father says, listen to Jesus. It's like in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, who from among your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. Back then, God said through Moses to the people, you've got to listen. You've got to listen to him. And it's the same message then on the mountaintop. You've got to listen to Jesus. And it's the same message today. You've got to listen to Jesus. We can say, well, that's interesting. Jesus has some profound things to say and he's quite a philosopher and a, even a theologian and I admire him and I, in, I, I, want to, I want to support him in what he's saying. Now, he can do all that stuff. But if he says, will you really follow me? Will you really listen to me? That is where the challenge is. And right here, God says, don't, don't just sort of nod. You've got to really listen. Well, they just heard God speak in a pretty spectacular way. Does Peter say, oh, so is that, is that four tenths? Uh, no. He says, verse 6 of our Matthew 17, we read that the disciples were terrified and they fell face down on the ground. Terrified. They were overwhelmed with fear. Absolutely overwhelmed with fear. I reckon I'd be the same thing. I mean, it's good to treat God with proper respect, of course. You know, there's something wrong, I think, about treating God like he's just another bloke you might meet in the street. But they've gone the extra mile, the other extreme. They've come into the presence of God and they've just done the full face plant. <clears throat> They cannot look. They are terrified. It's almost like a fetal position. They're protecting the vital organs. I can't look. I'm terrified of what's about to happen here. So what happens at that point with Jesus? Because there's God. And then there's the, the three scaredy cats here. And, and legitimately scaredy cats. I'm fine with that. I'd be there as well. What does Jesus do at this point? What do you think Jesus might do? Well, I, he does something here that I think is really quite beautiful. We read in verse 7 that Jesus came over and he touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. <laughs> I mean, maybe it was an Aussie Jesus would be like, Mate, what are you doing? Get up! No. He walks up to them, puts his hand on them, that, that feeling of touch. And he says, Don't be afraid. 
Isn't that what we want Jesus to say to us? Isn't that what we want to hear from Jesus? Don't be afraid. They are overwhelmed with fear, absolutely terrified. And Jesus showed them tender compassion. Tender compassion. He touched them. The tough, grown men were face down on the ground, shaking in fear, and Jesus walked over and touched them. And he said, don't be afraid. Fear not. It's, it's what he tends to say to them quite a bit. You tell someone, don't fear. Uh, if they've not been fearing, they probably start to fear. But if they have been fearing, it's exactly what they need to hear. Because they saw him walk on water. That's weird. That's scary. And he says, don't fear. There's a huge storm. And he says, shh. And it stops. They, they fear. He says, do not fear. And it's the same thing again. And so they listen to Jesus, they trust him, and they look up, and well, it turns out that Moses and Elijah are gone, and they saw only Jesus, verse 8. It's all over again. You kind of wonder why Moses and Elijah were there in the first place. But it does make sense. Because at the end of the day, Moses and Elijah were just warm-up acts. They were the ones, they were the ones that were preparing us for Jesus when he would come. Moses showed us so much about what it meant to, to save the people. And Elijah understood what it meant to, to really call out Satan and the evil forces. And then Jesus turns up. Moses, he's pretty impressive. Elijah, yep. And they are eclipsed by Jesus. And that was one of the most amazing things of time. What would you do if you left that mountain then and got to the bottom and you bumped into somebody? What would be the first thing you'd do? They'd say, how's your week been, mate? Oh, yeah, you know, transfiguration. Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd be like, you could not stop but tell people. You'd want, to, you'd want to just tell everybody, guess what, guess what, guess what, guess what? You know, selfie, mountain. You'd do whatever it takes to get it out there. But Jesus, as he tends to do, Tells them as they get down to the mountain, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Can they tell all their mates? Not right now. It's like, oh, please, Jesus. It's such a good story, but no. They had to keep it secret until Easter, which wasn't going to be too far away from them. And for the sake of those three disciples, and for us today, as we read God's living word, we given a fresh reminder here that Jesus is going to die and is going to rise from the dead. It's all thrown in there as well. It's another reminder he's going to die. He keeps telling them he's going to die. Only six days ago they really understood that and they're probably still quite upset about that. He is dead man walking. Soon it will be the last time that he's up there. He'll head down to Jerusalem for the very last time and the end of that chapter will see him dead and lifeless in a cold tomb. And it's starting to sink in. And surely the disciples must have had that heavy-hearted feeling. You know that heavy-hearted feeling when you're told that a loved one only has a short while to live? That's the kind of feeling they would have had about Jesus. It's just so sad. They wake up in the morning, they see Jesus, they think, not many days left now. And then, with all of that still happening... As they're still buzzing around in their head. They happen to have a chat with him about Elijah. 
they say to him, verse 10, why do the teachers of the religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? And Jesus answers them in a surprising way. In verse 11 he says to them, well, Elijah is indeed coming, but he's coming first to get everything ready. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, but he wasn't recognised, and they chose to abuse him. And in the same way, they will also make the Son of Man suffer. Then the disciples realised that he was talking about John the Baptist. Elijah came to prepare the way of the Lord, which is exactly what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist took that role, preparing them for the Messiah, and look what they did to John. They beheaded him. And so I think it's fair to say that if they're going to behead Elijah, they won't stop at crucifying Jesus. It's more overwhelming information for them to try and absorb as they make the long journey down the mountain. But they get to the bottom of the mountain and we read in verse 14 that at the foot of the mountain a large crowd was waiting for them and a, a man came and he knelt before Jesus and he said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. This happens again and again, doesn't it? Another person with a heartbreaking story. Not only did this kid have seizures, he ends up in the fire. Whatever, when he goes into the fire, he gets burned. It's tragic. You just imagine the, the pain and the anguish and the sadness of the father as he talks about his son's sickness. This is well before CT scans and neurologists, of course. They don't know what's happening. And it's breaking his heart. And what's more, his heart is broken because... Well, he says in verse 16, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. I, I, I tried then, but I've come back for a, for a second go from you, Jesus. And you think, well, fair enough. The disciples are just disciples. They're just people like you and me, aren't they? I mean, yes, they've got a special authority. They're hanging around Jesus and all those things matter. But really, you know, it's, it can't be too hard on them. And so you'd kind of expect Jesus to say something like, I'm sorry they couldn't fix your son. He's a hard one. Let me have a go. I'll be able to do it for you. Don't be too hard on my disciples. They're, they're pretty good, but not all the time. Or, but I love them. They're great. You know. Here's what Jesus says. You faithless and corrupt people. How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring your boy here to me now. I reckon if you have one of those games where you had to guess what are the sayings of Jesus and what are the sayings of some other leader, and if you wrote all these different things down here, I'd get to that question and say, well, that's not Jesus. But it is. Why? It just sounds like Jesus got out of the wrong side of bed or he loses it. It, 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 it just seems out of... It just seemed out of character. But what we see there is that Jesus exposes his frustration. And I say sometimes when, when somebody loses it, you, you think there's got to be a backstory to this. Something has happened to that person that's going to lead, that's led them to just act uncharacteristically for whatever reason. And, and it makes you wonder whether the same thing applying right here to Jesus. 
Has he been perhaps unduly influenced by his emotions? Have his emotions maybe taken the better of him? In fact, does Jesus get influenced by emotions? Does he really feel stuff? Does he actually, does his heart change? Does he, does he feel sad? Does he feel happy? Does he feel stressed? Does he feel all these different emotions? Well, I think his heart did change his mind. I think he's, he does legitimately get swayed by his emotions because emotions are part of being human. Jesus was fully human. Now, he didn't sin at all. That's where he's totally different to us. So how would he do this? How would he have emotions that, that affected him but didn't break God's laws? Well, what emotion did he feel then? What made that happen? I think it was compassion. You may not obviously think that, but I reckon it is actually. He felt compassion for his three disciples as they were there on the mountain and they were face down and terrified. He goes and touches them and says, don't worry guys. Fear not. And I think that same compassion is bubbling around here in his heart as he sees this man whose child is so broken and he just wants to fix him. And what does Jesus feel? He feels compassion and he feels frustration. He's frustrated with sin. The the sin that led the first human to reject God's will. And ever since then, it's the whole world that has been affected by this. And part of that broken world is sickness and fear. Jesus came to bring healing to sickness and and to deal with fear by bringing comfort. And now it just seems like Jesus is playing one of those games of whack-a-mole. You know what it is when you go, bang, and another one pops up. You go, bang, and another one pops up. Bang! He heals somebody. Another one pops up. Heals you, blind person. Okay, you're going bang, 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 bang. How long is this going to go on? It can't just keep going on like this. And even the apostles, good on them, but they weren't able to fix it. It's not like you could say, you, you, you take over my work here, because they're not doing it. It seems that Jesus is frustrated at life before his death. He knows he's about to die. He knows it's not much longer. And he knows that what is required here is patience. His heart is big enough to show compassion for anyone. But the true solution requires patience. I've mentioned this before, but there's a great commentary I'm really enjoying on Matthew's Gospel by Peter Bolt. He actually says in his commentary that the outburst from Jesus makes a bit more sense when you see that it's quite similar to something that was said in the Song of Moses just before God's people entered the promised land. I'll read to you two verses from Deuteronomy chapter 32. It starts off verse 4 by saying, He is the rock. This is no, no surprise there. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He's a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. In verse 5, But they have acted corruptly towards him. When they act so perversely, are they really his children? They are a deceitful and twisted generation. It's the same kind of sentiment. God's the rock, 
but they are a mess. Israel is broken, and even Jesus' disciples are broken. And now the whole universe needs complete healing. And it's getting closer and closer and closer to the time when that will happen. Because right now all Jesus can do is go around palliative care putting on band-aids. It's like, I'll heal you, I'll heal you, I'll heal you. But the place is broken, the system is a mess. I've got to do something to fix it. And that is the road to the cross. That will not happen until the servant of God becomes the suffering servant. But with his outburst, we read verse 18, that Jesus rebuked the demon in the boy and it left him. And from that moment, the boy was well. Of course, Jesus fixed the boy, even though the disciples couldn't. But they didn't. They couldn't quite work out exactly why they weren't able to do it. And so they said in verse 19 to Jesus privately, why couldn't we cast out that demon? I'm sure it wasn't for lack of trying. It wasn't because they didn't care. But Jesus said to them, verse 20, you don't have enough faith. I tell you the truth, if you had faith, even as small as a tiny, 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 tiny mustard seed, you could say to this mountain that I've just been standing on with you guys, you could say, move from here to there and it would. Nothing would be impossible. Their problem is, their faith is so ridiculously small, it's useless. They were mere humans. They were powerless to fix the problem. They didn't need a lot of faith to do some pretty serious excavation and civil engineering. You know what I mean? But they didn't even have that. Their faith was too small. Mere humans. Powerless to fix the problem. When it comes to fixing the world, they have got nothing. And that's the problem with humanity. Humanity can't fix the problem it's created. We're stupid enough to wreck the place, but we're certainly not smart enough to fix it. You know, the more time I spend with people who don't know Jesus, the more I see lives that are utterly helpless to fix their problems. Lives are a mess. People are are self-medicating with all sorts of substances which which often lead to addictions. And and people build up these protections around themselves by refusing to do anything that might open up a personal vulnerability. I'm not going to say sorry. I'm not going to forgive. If I say sorry, it's sorry, but... You know, I'm not going to, I can't open myself up. And it's so sad to see that. And it's good for our nation to, to gather with other nations to try and fix the world. Environmental issues, peace and war, viruses, Omicron. But the point is that we are powerless without Jesus. Even Peter, James and John, they didn't have enough faith to fix it. So what hope do you reckon we've got? Well, we do have hope. And it's in Jesus. 
And this episode segues into another reminder of what he's about to have happen to him. Verse 22 and 23. For we read that they gathered again in Galilee and Jesus told them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He'll be killed, but on the third day he'll be raised from the dead. And the disciples were filled with grief. They go back down to the heart of the action in Galilee. Jesus says, I'm going to be betrayed and killed. It's, it's like it's a chorus now, over and over again. They've worked out who Jesus is, and now I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to be killed. And in particular, he says that he's going to be betrayed. Betrayal is brutal. If you've experienced betrayal, someone who's, who loves you or is close to you and they do something to hurt you, in the way that only someone close can really hurt you, then you'll know it is brutal. And they realise this and they know the betrayal is brutal and it fills them with grief. They are overwhelmed with sadness. It's not, and the disciples were a bit sad. It's like filled with grief. Overwhelmed with sadness. Every day Jesus is one day closer to dying and it's not too long really. And it makes them stick, sick to the stomach. But now in our final scene for today, they arrive in Capernaum. That's at the north of Lake Galilee. It's actually where Jesus began his ministry up there, remember? And now he's there again. And you know, it's going to be the last time he is there ever. And he arrives there. And the chapter, the last little bit, talks about a tax, a temple tax. You're thinking... Well, this is sort of not really important. Not the kind of lofty important that we've had. What's it talking about there? Because it says in verse 24, On their arrival in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and asked him, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? You know, they've been in the transfiguration. And they're talking about the crucifixion. And now they're talking about some silly tax, some, some temple tax that helped maintain the temple. What's the significance of that? Well, it's paid when people went into the Jerusalem for the Passover. They did it once a year. That's why all those money changers were there. They had to be able to, you know, get their money to be able to pay the temple tax. But if you didn't make the journey down to Jerusalem, you're still expected to pay it, except priests and rabbis. And so this bloke says, hey, Peter, does your rabbi pay it or not? And Peter says, oh, yeah, he does. Verse 25. 25a, yes he does, and then he went into the house. He tells them Jesus does pay it, and then we read that before he had a chance to speak, that, that Jesus asked him, what do you think, Peter? Do kings tax their own people, or the people they, uh, they have conquered? What do you think? And he says, well, they tax the people that they have conquered. Peter replied. Well then, Jesus said, the citizens are free. It's a bit of a cryptic question. You're thinking, exactly how does that work? Well, the English Standard Version is a bit more literal and I think it's probably a bit more helpful here. It says it this way. From whom, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? That's what it literally says. And the next verse he says... When he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. 
In other words, the son of a king doesn't tax his kids, right? Jesus is the son of the temple's king. So he doesn't need to get taxed, right? Yeah. Jesus is the king's son, so he doesn't need to pay, right? Yeah, fair enough. Peter mightn't have thought about that very much. But Jesus wants to make an important point about how Jesus didn't need to pay a price at the temple. Now hang in there with me because I think we're going to see something very significant about what Jesus is doing on the cross that we may not have expected from this verse. Because even though Jesus didn't have to pay a price at the temple, he chose to pay a price that he didn't need to pay at the temple. Have a look at this. It's the last verse today. He says, However, we don't want to offend them, so go down to the lake and throw in a line. Open the mouth of the first fish you catch and you'll find a large silver coin. Take it and pay the tax for both of us. (laughs) It's kind of cool, really. The way he paid was pretty supernatural. One coin would cover the cost for Jesus. He gets a half and Peter the other half. It's a gift from God's creation. What's the purpose of all of this? Some people say it's a kind of a, well, you need to submit to authorities sort of thing. And that is certainly something that Jesus has talked about at other times. You know, the, in chapter 22, we'll get give to, Caesar's what a, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So we're going to get that bit in a little while. Is that what he's talking about here? And I think the answer is no, he's not talking about that here. Jesus is not the guy who tries to keep the peace around the Jewish rulers, is he? Um, you know, which bit of keeping the peace do you get from brood of snakes, which appears three times in Matthew's Gospel as a, as a kind of a word of affection. I think something else is going on here. And Peter Bolt, it's a second mention tonight, he also helps us because he points us, I think, to Exodus chapter 30. Have a listen to this. I think this makes more sense. I'm going to read out to you seven verses. We're nearly finished. Have a look for words like ransom. Have a look for words like purify and see if you can see the connection Exodus 30 11 to 16 then the Lord said to Moses whenever you take a census of the people of Israel each man who is counted must pay a ransom for himself to the Lord then no plague will strike the people as you count them each person who's counted must give a small piece of silver as a sacred offering to the Lord This payment's half a shekel, there it is again, based on the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 gerars. All who have reached their 20th birthday must give this sacred offering to the Lord. And when this offering is given to the Lord to purify your lives, making you right with him, the rich must not give more than the specified amount, the poor must not give less. Receive this ransom money from the Israelites and use it for the care of the tabernacle, the temple. It will bring the Israelites to the Lord's attention and it will purify your lives. I've never seen that connection before. I reckon it's pretty cool. See, this half-shekel temple tax is a ransom that people pay to avoid the plague and to purify their lives. They paid a ransom to be saved and purified. Did Jesus need to pay that? No. He didn't need to go to the temple and to pay the temple tax. He didn't need to be purified. He didn't need to be ransomed. Not at all. 
But did he pay it? Yeah. Why? For himself? No. For us. He chose to make the payment not for himself, but for others, so that we might be ransomed and restored. As we read in Isaiah 53, here's the Isaiah quote. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. How silly were we? But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. Jesus took his disciples up to the mountaintop so that they might know from God himself that Jesus is the Son of God, the servant. And when Jesus went to the foot of the mountain, they were all reminded of how the servant would suffer. See, in this, the suffering servant paid for us. So now we can enjoy the mountaintop experience of knowing that Jesus, knowing Jesus, we can experience that through the journey from the foot of the mountain to the cross as Jesus pays the ransom for our sins by his very life. Let me pray.